You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before we start today, we have, you know, we have this event coming up in April. And I just, you know, I think it's just a few weeks away now, right? We're talking about April 22nd and 23rd. It is, you know, our standard Wealth Formula Meetup. A really great event, great speakers coming. Also great opportunity to meet one another and see some of the property that we uh, own in the Investor Club and learn how value-add real estate is really done. I highly encourage you to come uh, there. I think there might be a couple spots left. I'm not sure, but check it out. Wealthformulaevents.com. And for those of you who are going to be here there, I look forward to seeing you. If the event is full and you really want to come, let me know because uh, I do want to make sure that everybody wants to come can do so. We keep these events pretty small, by the way. So anyway, let's uh, talk about today's topic. Uh, we have a really interesting guest who's the new chief economist over at Walmart. You know, And listen, I know this is not a business show per se. It's a, really a personal finance show. But I think there are some things that are overlapping. Um, and I'll tell you from my experience, just take a moment uh, because I know there are a number of uh, people out there who do own businesses, whether that's just your own practice or whatever, or maybe you're thinking about starting some kind of new entrepreneurial endeavor. So, you know, I've been at this for a good decade and started a number of uh, small businesses. Uh, some of them were wildly successful and others were wild failures. But so let me just tell you about some of the things that I've learned because I think it's useful. I mean, first, I think one of the things that I learned uh, that's really important is that I have found that businesses with fewer variables make businesses easier to run and in most cases more profitable. You can see examples of this with big businesses all the time, by the way. Um, you know, I think one of the extreme examples, if you live in the California area, is uh, in and out Burger. I mean, that's a very, very successful uh, burger company. And you look at the menu, it's very simple. There's like five things on the menu. Makes it easy, right? Supply chain, you know, what kinds of stuff do you need? All that kind of stuff. Simplicity in operations. And, you know, while it may seem like a good idea uh, for somebody starting a business to have a lot of different services and a lot of different stuff that can people can buy, you know, most of the time, business is pretty quickly realize that this is really not the ideal approach. You know, you hear about the 80-20 rule. Uh, I won't go into that in much detail, but basically 20% of your sales, 20% of your profits usually are coming from the same people. They're coming from the same services, et cetera. So that's something to think about and make your life easy and hopefully more profitable because too many products and services create too many variables. And the more moving parts you have in a business makes it harder to run efficiently. So another lesson that I learned really relates to the previous concept, and that is of keeping complexity minimal. You know, stay away from businesses with too much overhead. So I've run um, started and run medical businesses, uh, you know, like my cosmetic surgery business and marketing budgets of over a million dollars a year. Uh, and in good months, I felt like I was the king of the world and nothing could go wrong. And I'm, you know, what's the, what's the big huge thing I'm going to buy or something like that. And on the bad ones, I was seriously worried about becoming homeless. And that's not a good way to live. And by the way, you know, 
I, I didn't add this to the list, but another way that I've created this level of stability in my life is to have multiple businesses in different industries. However, the, finally, I will say that the most difficult part of owning and scaling a business, in my opinion, of course, is the issue of people. You know, I once built a very successful cosmetic surgery business, which I've talked about before. It's in Chicago. And then I try to do the same in like four other cities at the same time, thinking, oh, I mean, this is, you know, listen, if I could do this in Chicago, the third largest market in the country, why couldn't I do this in smaller markets and crush it? Well, those businesses failed miserably. And in hindsight, the biggest reason for failure was because I did not have the right people to execute the plan. I mean, there's lots of reasons for failure, but the people was number one. And of course, I'm just a, you know, a bootstrap entrepreneur, right? Like I'm not, you know, I'm not a big major corporation or something like that. I didn't start Facebook. Uh, but my guest on Wealth Formula podcast today is the chief economist at Walmart. In fact, he's been the chief economist at some major multi-billion dollar companies like Lyft as well. So this conversation that we're going to have, I found very interesting. And what I found interesting about it was that, you know, many of the problems that I saw at my level as a bootstrap entrepreneur were the same ones that he recognized while running, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations. And of course, I couldn't resist getting his take on the current economy and the war and inflation and all that. So we're going to talk about that as well. So whether you're interested in, you know, what it takes to start and scale a business, this is a good conversation to listen to, and we will get to it right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We have a great show today. We have John A. List, who, uh, as we'll get into, is in a, a very unique position to discuss the economy right now. But before that, uh, he's uh, served as a Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago, and has also been the editor of the Journal of Political Economy. Now, what I was alluding to earlier, him having his finger on the pulse of probably the global economy right now is that he was just named Walmart's first chief economist. So congratulations and welcome uh, to the show, John. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for your congrats. I'm super excited about talking to you and starting my adventure with Walmart. Yeah, no, this is great. And it's interesting as uh, we were talking offline, we, we almost kind of did a, another show offline here. We started talking about your your wife and she's an otologist. So we have an otologist listening to this, actually. Listen, I can think of at least two or three guys who do cochlear implants like your wife. So so you'll it's, it's like talking to your colleague, your wife's colleagues, pretty much. So awesome, awesome. we're also going to get into a book you wrote in a bit, but First and foremost, what do you think of the economy right now here, John? I mean, we, we've got a few things going on. We've got inflation. We've got war. We've got interest rates following the inflation up. You know, you're going to be positioned at Walmart and, and dealing with a lot of issues with regard to supply chain. And I'm sure you're not going into this without having some ideas about what's happening already. So I'd love to just get your take on what's going on and where you think we're headed. Sure, sure. So... You are correct to point out that we have some headwinds. And when I think about headwinds, some of the most important headwinds are uncertainty. And we do have geopolitical uncertainty. We do have aggregate market uncertainty in terms of what our interest rates going to look like. We have supply chain issues, but I think those will be sorted out in relatively short time. I think in general, Given those uncertainties, 
I feel pretty good about our economy. And I feel pretty good because the general infrastructure and the general, let's say, wins in terms of monetary policy and what we have in place in the private sector, I'm, I'm pretty bullish, actually. I, I do think that you could go south in a hurry with a few of the elements. I think inflation is real, but I do think that the Fed is doing a reasonable job in combating it or at least controlling it as, as well as they can. I'm, I'm confident in, in J-PAL in that way. I, I do think we have a lot of arrows in the quiver to take on new problems that might surface. I think when you look at various sectors in our economy, we're still the most innovative in the world. We still have the most human capital in the world. And when you have those two elements going in your favor, for the long run, it's a pretty good bet. Yeah. So you you make you know some really good points about, and I think we we frequently forget that you know when we uh, when we're investing when we're doing things in the economy we're we're really doing things for the long run, right? And and you know I I get this feedback sometime from investors right now. Rates are going up. What's going to happen with multifamily? Well. We're going to keep growing. Our population is going to still growing and they're going to still need a place to work and, and they're going to have more jobs and they're going to still, you know, be paying rent and, and all this. So you're from what I'm taking from what you just said was, yes, we were at a war. Yes. We've got some, uh, you know, inflation on the horizon, but the long run uh, fundamentals and, um, and I think you're alluding to some capital, potentially that's still waiting to be deployed into this economy, um, you're bullish. Is that oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the institutions that we have set up in our country, I mean, just think about the fabric of, of our institutions and, and our government and, and our, our laws. It's, um, it's very different than in many other parts of the world. So once you start with those ingredients and you add with it, you have a lot of capital on the sidelines, let's be honest. When you, when you think about liquidity, but it's not only financial capital, it's also human capital. Mm -hmm. And when I say human capital, we have the best trained workers in the world. And these are high-skilled workers that innovate and make new products. So when you put all of that together in the machinery that we have, it's pretty hard not to be bullish on the, yeah. for sure the long run. Now, the short run, you can wake up every morning and watch CNBC and they have a different story every morning. If the futures are up or down 400, they're talking about the world's going to end mm -hmm. or, or the world's taking off. I, I don't think of the world that way. I think about, do we have the fundamental features in place to have a high growth economy for years to come? And I think we do. Let's talk about some of those short-term issues though. And I think people are are kind of, you know, feeling some of these things on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's energy prices and inflation and that kind of thing. You know, we had, um, I, I spoke to an economist last week and who was really, uh, I think, driving home that inflation had a lot to do with not only the supply chain, but the energy crisis and stuff. But this has sort of been brewing for a while now, right? I mean, how oh, much of this... I mean, how much of this is really from the crisis in Ukraine and how much is this is just, you know, pent again, you know, supply chain issues, yeah. supply and demand imbalance, you know, what, what exactly is driving all of the inflation in your view? Yeah, no, it's always important to separate these different factors and it's difficult to separate the different factors, but 
I think these inflationary pressures were in place for months before what has gone on in, in Ukraine. So did that help? No. Did the uncertainty that it invoked geopolitically help? No. Would have we had inflation without that? Absolutely. When you look at the, the fraction of energy provided by this region of the world, it's, it's not enough to um, cause such inflation. So it has to be either in place before or it had to change our expectations or beliefs about where the world economy is going. And I think let's, it's hard to guess, but I would say a, a large fraction of what's going on now was already in place before what happened in the Ukraine. Yeah. So I guess part of why I ask you asked that is that, you know, this idea that, you know, what was happening with inflation was transitory. And that was what the Fed was talking about, uh, you know, early on, is that the inflation that we were seeing is, is, is transitory. Do you think that maybe it was transitory and now the energy crisis and some of the other issues that we're having now may have really solidified that as a not a transitory yeah, issue? Yeah, permanent public. issue. Yeah. No, I, I think that they were wrong in, in guessing that it was all transitory. Look, look, let's be honest. When you have these forecasts, those these are guesses. Yeah. And, and these are these are difficult guesses to make. But I, I think that, sure, a portion of it was transitory, but I don't think all of it was transitory. And I don't think that the, the events made it permanent. I, I don't believe that. I think an element of it was permanent. The labor market was changing dramatically from COVID. And the supply chain was changing dramatically before these struggles happened. So these are elements that will change inflationary pressure dramatically, and they were. Those there were hints in the economy already. When you look at you know taking over as the chief economist of Walmart, a lot of the issues that um, I would imagine that you'll be really looking at closely are related to supply chain issues. What what are you seeing there? Is, are things starting to free up a little bit? Is that starting to become less of an issue? Because certainly that seems to be a, a significant contributor to the in, inflationary environment that we're seeing. So I haven't started at Walmart yet, but what I've learned is they control their whole supply chain. They control the ships. They control the ports. Yeah. So what, what they might not control, I don't know about their long-term contracts, is let's say the goods put on the ships. I, I, don't, I don't know how they control labor costs, but the supply chain itself with a big company like Walmart as far as I understand it, is not as susceptible to other supply chain issues that other firms have talked about. That doesn't mean there won't be inflation. There can still be inflation pushed by labor and, and mm -hmm. goods and, let's say, it, raw input changes, which is what is happening. But the supply chain itself, as I understand, Walmart is in very good position to continue to leverage the supply chain that they have set up for themselves. How about outside of Walmart, though, just in general? I mean, like people just, you know, just thinking about what we've been told about some of these issues that are driving inflation. You, we, we've, you know, we, we hear about supply chain all the time, right? So are, have you gotten a chance or have you been able to see any evidence that in general, I mean, outside of Walmart, who's, you know, maybe in a different, more protected situation, that things are starting to 
loosen up a little bit, that things are coming back to a, um, a new post-COVID normal? Slowly, I would say. So in my limited experiences, one is with the book. Uh, right. We had supply chain issues with my book. In, in my book, <laughs> my yeah. book was published in February, February 1st, and it was difficult to secure production and shipment and storage of the book. Yeah. And I know that that's simple. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, these are, these are simple chores, but if this is happening with my book, that gives you an indication of what can happen in the broader economy. Now, is it lessening from my experiences in talking to people? Yes, it, it is lessening. Is it gone? No, it's not gone. It, and I don't think it's gone and will go away until we have the labor market situation figured out. And when the labor market situation comes to, let's say, a new equilibrium, that's going to give us a pretty good indication of the supply side and how marginal costs have increased because of the last few years events. Can you just, you know, for us uh, non-economists, just when you, when you talk about the, the labor market coming back, how, how does that affect the supply chain? No, absolutely. So if workers demand higher wages mm-hmm. who are throughout the supply chain, that's going to have to be absorbed somewhere. Right. And sometimes it depends on the elasticity of demand for the good or service, but sometimes it's absorbed by the firm. Sometimes it's absorbed by the consumer, sometimes a little bit of each, sometimes the input provider. So what you have is many people leaving the labor force. And what are they doing? Well, some of them are working at home and innovating. Some are are entrepreneurs and some are trying their luck at a different trade or a different skill. And if that leads to a higher wage, whether it's an Uber driver or part of the supply chain, that will have to be absorbed somewhere. And in many cases, it ends up being higher prices. Fascinating stuff. And it'll be interesting to see how this all ends up. But let's let's change a little bit topic-wise. I know you have this book that you've got a Wall Street uh, Journal uh, uh, bestseller, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas, Great Ideas, Scale. Why'd you write the book? Yeah, you know, I'd been doing academic work for maybe five years on scaling. And when I say scaling, what I mean is if you have an idea and you try it out in the Petri dish, what are the chances that that idea can make it big? Mm -hmm. And I had written a fair number of academic papers about this issue. And I decided to stop and take stock of what I had learned in in the academic uh, community and bring it to everyone. And I wanted to bring it to everyone because whether it's government or a private firm or a nonprofit, everywhere where I've worked, we've talked about scaling. And we've talked about if it works in the small, will it work in the large? And what I have observed is that in nearly every walk of life, the decision about whether to scale something has been a decision about art. And there has been very little science that has been brought to this question. So I I have some science and I want to talk scientifically about this problem. So that's why I wrote the book. 
So what are the variables that go into this? I mean, I mean, I'm just looking at this thinking, okay, you got this Petri dish of, you know, ideas, you got mom and pop places. I have personal experience in having started a few businesses myself that I always wondered if I could scale. So when you look at, um, you know, when you, when you talk about the science of that, uh, talk a little bit about the variables that go into, you know, that Petri dish that may determine whether something is scalable or not. Yeah, it's a good question. So I break it down to five major reasons why ideas fail to scale. And the first one is something I call false positives or something we all know. You know, you get a COVID test. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it says positive when it's really not positive. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, we scale ideas that never had voltage to begin with. This happens a lot in government. Where, where government has yeah, right. a program, like DARE, the DARE program is what I talk about in chapter yeah. one with Nancy yeah. Reagan. Right. And they thought they had voltage. It never did. So your listeners will be very surprised by the number of ideas that people throw money at that never had anything to begin with. That's, that's vital sign number one. Mm -hmm. Vital sign number two is, in many cases, we exaggerate the slice of the pie that our idea can pick off. And when I say that, I mean it in a sense that think about McDonald's. Mm -hmm. um, a story I talk about in this chapter is this new burger called the Arch Deluxe. Do you remember the Arch Deluxe or do you ever try the Arch Deluxe? You know, I don't remember that. I remember many different McDonald's uh, <laughs> and Burger King <laughs> things, but that one I don't remember. Yeah, good. So I can teach you med something. School. I don't know. <laughs> you were in your healthy years back then. <laughs> so the CEO of McDonald's has this idea to create a sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. Okay, uh -huh. great. So what they do is they set up some focus groups. In the focus groups, they bring them in and they give them the Arch Deluxe and they say, what do you think? Do you like it? Everyone says, yeah, we love it. And then they say, would you pay $5? Yes. $7? Yes. $9? Yes. And oh. two problems with this. One problem is the people who will actually come to your lab, your focus group, are probably not representative of those who you're selling into. Right. Most people kind of know that. Although McDonald's, they didn't adjust for that back in the 90s. Um, the second thing is Think about the incentives that a focus group respondent has. Okay, you know the stock market well. We tend to invest in assets. Either we buy them, like we buy a share of stock, or we buy an option. Of course, that option gives you the right in the future to buy the underlying asset at a certain price. Mm -hmm. We pay real money for options. Think about the respondent in a focus group. Oh, would you buy the hamburger at $5? Of course I would. <laughs> You're buying a free option. Right. Because when McDonald's introduces it, now I have a free option to actually buy it. If I don't like it, I won't buy it. No skin off my back. Yeah. It's a new good on the menu. Great. So I'm going to overemphasize or over-exaggerate my preferences every time. We have techniques to help overcome that, but typically the business or the government doesn't understand those techniques and understand how to use them. So that's number two. And, and one of the running examples I have in this chapter is about 
about Lyft. So I used to be the chief economist at Lyft. And we talked about a membership program called Lyft Pink. And I'll, I'll leave it for the, the listeners to go and read it. But I, I think this is another perfect example of over-exaggerating the slice of the pie that your idea can capture. Okay. So the third vital sign is what I call, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And mm -hmm. this analogy gives you a sense about what you need for ideas to work. So I did a lot of research on restaurants and there are a lot of restaurants that try to scale. What happens is they're killing it with one restaurant. They're making a million dollars and they say, well, if I would have 50 of these things, I'd make 50 million bucks. Right. So they scale. Yep. Here's what happens. If the initial success is due to the chef, it will never scale. If the initial success is due to the ingredients and you can buy those ingredients at scale, now you have a shot. You still have to execute. My right. book is about what are the signatures of ideas that can scale. You still have to execute. But in this case, it teaches you that unique humans don't scale. So if your initial idea is based on a super unique human, and you need that unique human to keep performing, I'm not talking about make a commercial. I'm talking about has to continue to produce in, in, that, in that restaurant or in that shop, wherever, that will never scale. Because unique humans, even though they're unique, they have a hard time teaching others what they know. Nearly impossible. Right. So the idea here is make sure that your initial success is done with ingredients and in situations that are scalable. That's the general lesson about this particular vital sign. Vital sign number four is about understanding spillovers. So there are some ideas that have great spillovers. Think about social media or something like Facebook. The more people who use Facebook, the more valuable that service or product is. Mm -hmm. That's something that might not look so great in the Petri dish, but when you scale it, it ends up being great. Uber and Lyft also have these things called network externalities. Yeah. So these are types of ideas that are really high voltage at scale. Other ideas aren't so high voltage. And I talk about those in, in this chapter of the book. There are four kinds of spillovers that we should always look for in our ideas. Now, the fifth vital sign is the supply side of scaling. So what I mean by that is some ideas have great supply side considerations. Some have terrible. Mm -hmm. Let me give you one that has terrible supply side. Um, I started a pre-K a pre school for three, four, and five-year-olds in Chicago Heights. So the idea was hire some good teachers, and I had to hire 30 teachers, and I gave these three, four, and five-year-olds a good program. Great. It worked perfectly. Now, if I want to scale that idea, what I have to do is I have to hire 30,000 good teachers. So it's altogether a different story to hire yep. 30 good teachers around Chicago versus 30,000, what's going to happen? I have to go up the supply curve and I have to pay people more and more money as I hire them. That's called diseconomies of scale. 
So some ideas just invariably have diseconomies of scale, and some ideas have economies of scale. And what's interesting in this part of the book, whenever I was talking to firms, for-profit firms, where they typically start is they say, does my idea have economies of scale? Where the government doesn't start there. The government right. says, what will the benefit profile look like? Right. They're not even concerning themselves with the supply side. So those are the five features or vital signs of an idea that I talk about in the first half of the book. When, when you think about some of the case studies that you talk about, successes and failures, uh, it sounds like we, we have probably a pretty good idea of what doesn't work. How about, how about things that are particularly, seem to work particularly well? Yeah. So I will start by saying any idea that has these five vital signs in place, as long as you have somebody who can execute, that idea will work. Now, what I can't predict is the number of competitors who come in. But what I can say is if you have economies of scale, it's much, much harder for a competitor to come in. So what I mean by that is if you grow big and your cost per unit to produce goes down and down and down, it's really hard for an entrant to come in and compete with you because you have such a low cost of production. Okay, so now you can say, what are some ideas that seem to work like this? One idea I like to think about is what we do at Lyft. So we have pricing. And, and in the pricing mode, we think about what are the best ways to price so we can get a lot of consumers to come in to Lyft. Now, we have elements that, number one, it's not a false positive. People like rideshare. So it checks off bucket number one. Number two, a lot of people like rideshare. A large portion of our economy uses rideshare. Number three, what are the situations that people like rideshare? Well, we need to have a good driver. So we've scaled to a certain extent, but we will not be able to fully scale until we become completely autonomous. And what I mean by that is the constraint right now to even bigger and bigger growth is a labor supply. Mm -hmm. So it, it shows you that the idea can scale, can work, and can work up to a certain level. But to get to the next level, you, you're going to need to do something about this labor input because it's taking 80% of the revenues, and that's not going anywhere because the commission's roughly 75 or 80% of drivers. And then the other part of that is insurance cost. So, mm -hmm. so those two components come with having hum scaling with humans. So to go to the next level, you're going to have to do something about that input. And then when you look at the spillovers, spillovers need to be better. And what I mean by that is right now there are congestion spillovers. We have a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers and, and cars around cities. That's putting a load on our traffic system and congestion. So we need to do a better job with that as well. Otherwise, the product isn't as great as it can necessarily be. You know, it seems to me that one of the uh, common themes uh, in what you talked about, and actually in, in even, you know, in my very small experience, my, my own uh, business ventures is the most difficult aspect often ends up being people, right? Like yeah. scaling people and employees and all that. But then you have this issue where 
you know, uh, automation also creates, you know, problems with jobs. I mean, how do you, how do you see in the future? I'm just curious, um, this, this sort of tension between machines and jobs. Um, you probably have dealt with that a little bit at Lyft. Um, you probably talked a little bit about those issues and some of the pressures that are coming from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we always need to concern ourselves with man versus machine or woman versus machine, whatever, what have you. And when you look historically, many technologies have been both labor-saving technologies, but there have also been a fair number that have been labor-augmenting technologies. So you have technologies that come on board, they make everyone better off, they make people richer, but they also lead to more labor opportunities. Mm -hmm. And when I think about technology in this way, I like to think about it through the lens of scaling. So I was at MIT the other day, and we were talking about a, a new AI feature that can actually code better than humans. Mm. So on, on my team at Lyft, I had 10 coders, 10 programmers. At Walmart, we'll have the same. And what I'm being told is that the machine is as good or better at many coding chores than humans. Mm. Okay. So I see the bright spot of that by asking, have there been ideas in the past that we've scrapped is unscalable because we can't get the unique humans to help us with it that now right. are scalable because of machines. Now, if that's true, we should be looking back at the trash heap and saying, where are the ideas that actually have a chance when you think about new technology and new AI? And I think there will be a lot of them. And yeah. in that case, this is bringing forward a completely new suite of ideas and innovations that were never possible before because of human constraints. But now they're possible. And when those new market opportunities are made possible, that leads to more opportunities for humans. And you can push that a step further. You might remember when Nevada, Nevada made a run years ago, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada made a run years ago to be the new Silicon Valley. And their problem was they didn't have Stanford and Berkeley right down the street. Yeah, right. So they didn't have the human capital that was being inputted into the local economy to be workers. But with the new work at home that we have and the new technology, you might also now open up new cities yep. that can be hubs of innovation in production in ways that they never had the shot before. So I'm, I'm kind of an optimist on this sense, I think that many technologies are labor augmenting rather than labor saving. You have a little bit of each, but I'm bullish on humans will always have a shot. Right. Uh, people who want to work, I think in our economy, more or less are going to have a shot. And I think new technologies even open up newer opportunities. Uh, John A. List. John is uh, the author again of The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. Uh, he's also the new chief economist 
uh, at Walmart. John, this book is already a Wall Street uh, Journal bestseller. Tell, tell us, I mean, we can just get it everywhere. I'm assuming Amazon, every bookstore. Is there is there an Audible book? Yeah, there is. In fact, the Audible book is probably doing better than the physical copy. Um, probably, probably and if you're assault. nervous, <laughs> but, it, but if you're nervous about having it be my voice, it's not. So I promise you don't have to listen to me. I've got this Midwestern nasally voice. So I promise it's not my voice. It's actually a, um, a real professional doing it. <laughs> I kind of liked it. It's probably because I'm from the Midwest as well. So <laughs> where are you from in the Midwest? I'm from Minnesota. Oh, man, I didn't hear the Fargo. I didn't hear the don't you know. Where are you where, from in Minnesota? Where, where, where are you from? I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Well, right outside oh, okay. of Madison, Wisconsin. I'm from well, Sun Prairie. I mean, it's it's pretty close. It's pretty close. I mean, you know, not that far at all. So uh, I heard it. I heard it. I was going to ask you offline as well, but uh, now we know it. So all those uh, cheese heads out there, you've got one, <laughs> one of your own. <laughs> I hope I bring you in some, some new cheese head <laughs> listeners. <laughs> John, great to have you on. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I can't wait to come back. It's always a pleasure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I do want to once again remind you, this is probably the last reminder. If you are interested in coming to our event in Phoenix, Scottsdale, our uh, meetup event, uh, that is on April uh, 22nd and 23rd. Would love to see you there. Go to Wealth Formula Events. Dot com. That's events with an S and make sure you register. And if it is full and you really want to come shoot me an email at bucketwealthformula.com and I'll try to make it happen. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.